Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Asato Masadagamaya Tamaso Mahaham Jyoti Gamaya Mrityor Mam Amritaham Gamaya Avir Ahavir Maedhi Rudra Yate Dakshinam Mukaham Te Namaham Pahinityam Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Reach us through and through ourselves. And evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. So my subject this morning is the ethics of Vedanta. And ethics is that domain of philosophy that deals with moral living. And it's all about the problems of moral action and ethical behavior and how it is that we can know and understand what is the difference between good and bad, right and wrong. As spiritual aspirants, we are interested in moral living. All different forms of yoga sadhana require that we be established, that is, require that we are adhikaris, that we are established in a foundation of moral and ethical living. And the teaching is that before we can expect to be successful in more advanced forms of sadhana, we have to be grounded in morality. Morality is to spirituality what a bud is to a flower. First comes the one, and then come the other. Just as you can't have a flower bloom without it forming the bud first, similarly too, you can't expect to prosper in spiritual life without first being established in moral and ethical living. In order to pursue any discussion of ethics, we have to begin with establishing in our mind what is the supreme good? What is the summum bonum of life? And we need to know that because it's going to give us a point of reference that will enable us to get our bearings and to determine what is the right direction. And I give the analogy of the man on horseback who galloping down the road, came to a traveler on the road, and he said, I'm completely lost. Can you tell me which way to go? And the traveler reasonably asked him, well, where are you going? 
First thing you have to know is what is your goal? What is your purpose in life? What is the goal of life? Now, this idea of the goal of life is really an idea that comes to us from the wisdom of the East. And although everyone in the world has short-term and long-term goals, and we can ask anyone, what are your goals? Yes, my goal is to get a good job, settle down, get married, to have a nice family, to be successful, to retire happily with my family and my children and my grandchildren. And all of these are positive dharmic goals of life. But no one of them constitutes the ultimate goal of life. The ultimate goal of life is to attain atma jnana. That means divine self-knowledge. That's the point and purpose of human life. To realize ourself, to realize the transpersonal, infinite, divine, immortal soul, which is our true nature. In Sanskrit, it's called moksha. That is, to our goal here is to achieve moksha is freedom. Freedom from the wheel and birth and death. How? By realizing our true nature. The goal of life is not to go to heaven. The goal of life is not to somehow work to make this world a heaven on earth. To work to make the world a better place to live. The goal of life is not to achieve happiness. The goal of life is not to make others happy. Rather, the goal is to realize your true self to become who you really are. And this is the purpose and the orientation of the whole process of moral and ethical living, right and wrong, good and bad, all are oriented towards this ultimate vision. I like to use the analogy of the immortal shining city on the hill. And we can imagine a great mountain in which all human beings, all self-conscious moral agents in the world are climbing that great mountain. At the top of that mountain is that shining city, the city of the self, the city of Brahman. And everyone is struggling and climbing to reach that city consciously or unconsciously fundamental law of all life is to struggle at every moment to be what it really is. So this is your fundamental driving purpose. Now ordinary plants, animals, cows, they don't have any problem. For them it's no struggle. They naturally are what they are. But only the tragedy of human life is that we suffer from a kind of a identity crisis. We don't know who we are. We're alienated from our true selves. And therefore, we're constantly struggling to rediscover ourselves. All people in the world are striving for freedom, for moksha, for self-knowledge. 
spiritual life, religious and spiritual life, is just about doing consciously and intentionally what everyone in the universe does unconsciously and unintentionally. And ethics is all about then teaching us how to live well, how to live more efficiently to accomplish our goal. Now, once we understand and you accept the thesis that you have a goal of life, that the go your goal of life is to realize your true nature, and that all humankind are struggling to achieve the same goal, that freedom, the moksha, liberation from the wheel of birth and death. Once we accept that as part of our belief system, then it becomes pretty clear to us what is the difference between right and wrong. It becomes very easy for us to decide what is good and what is bad. Because if our goal is to reach the top of the mountain, then what is the right thing to do? Right just means like a right angle. Is the straight, straight is the shortest distance between two points would be to go in a straight line to the top of the mountain. That would be the right, perfect, ideal thing to do. The wrong thing to do is like when you, you cognate with the English word ring. When you ring out a towel, you twist it so it's going in two different opposite directions. So maybe you're going in the opposite direction from what you really need to go in. That would be the wrong thing to do. So here we have an easy kind of rule of thumb for us to guide our moral life. That which is the right thing to do is which will take us up the mountain, will move us step by step towards being who we really are. And that is the wrong thing to do. By the way, this, this is the decision which we make at every moment of our lives, Shreyascha, Prayascha, Manushyam, Etas, Tau, Shreytasrata, Upanishad, every moment we come to a crossroads. And on the crossroads, there we make a choice between the good and the pleasant. What we want to do, and what we know we should do. And so the, our life is just a story of those choices, choices, choices. Now we have a rule of thumb as to how consciously to make that choice. And that action, which will take us onward and upward, that is a right action and it's a good action, that's our duty. An action which will take us back in the wrong direction, away from our true nature, away from personal growth, from raising our consciousness. You see the, the metaphor here of height, lower to higher, climbing onward and upward. So that which takes us upward, which expands our consciousness, which makes us grow. Expansion is life, contraction is death. Anything that contracts us, that uh, limits us, that's carrying us in the wrong direction. Swami Vivekananda gives another easy rule of some, whatever makes us stronger, that's a good thing. And whatever makes us weaker, whatever weakens us physically, morally, mentally, intellectually, spiritually, that is wrong. And that is something that we, that we want to avoid. Now, what are those uh, behaviors then? Given this as the, the foundational perspective of our goal, our purpose, 
our crossroads choices, our decision-making, our moral judgments that we need to make in order to plot the course of our life. Now we can ask ourselves more specifically, what are those behaviors that uh, will lead us upward? That will make us, we could say, that are moral and spiritual. And, well, in general, we can say that all of us kind of know that the teaching of the Vedanta philosophy is that we already know what is right. That is, the ultimate source, the foundation of our knowledge of right and wrong is our intuition. That is, our intuition means it's in our own nature. And therefore, we ask ourselves, what are the specific kinds of behavior that we need to do in order to become established in moral and ethical and spiritual living? We pretty much already know of those. It's pretty much common sense. I mean, everyone agrees. We say, well, we follow the Ten Commandments. Uh, avoid the seven deadly sins. Follow the Boy Scout law, right? Trustworthy, helpful, friendly, courteous, all those lists, all those adjectives. Boy Scout law, there's Boy Scouts in all the countries of the world. Doesn't matter if you're up in Alaska or if you're in, a, in South America or Africa. Boy Scouts, yeah, same Boy Scouts, same law. It's just common sense. Be a good person. Everybody in the world wants to be a good person. Follow the, the golden rule. All religions of the world have some version of the golden rule, and all the philosophers and of ethics love to uh, analyze and dissect the rule. Still pretty much the spirit, if we just take the spirit of the, of the rule, we find it's a pretty, pretty good rule of some. And all of the religions of the world, all cultures of the world, maintain and share a certain common core of ethical values. All religions maintain that we should avoid the vices of excess and deficiency, and that we should cultivate the cardinal virtues. So there are certain universal moral values. And usually when we use the word, I'm using the words here, ethical, moral, spiritual, kind of loosely this morning. Because these are words, when we become more precise, we're going to find that they are systematically ambiguous in different systems of meta-ethics. Therefore, when we talk here, we're going to keep a kind of a general, a generalized approach. As you know, when you talk about moral, a moral person, usually what we mean in common parlance, in those of us raised in a Judeo-Christian tradition, what we mean is the person doesn't break any of the Ten Commandments. That's a moral person. He does not do this, he does not do this, he does not do this. That is, he does not have any vices. And similarly, these negative moral injunctions are pretty much shared by all the teachings of all wisdom traditions of the world because everyone can agree on what we shouldn't do. But 
a little more difficult to find a consensus about what we should do. That is a positive list for the simple reason that the conception of the good changes in different ethical systems. But we can all pretty much agree, if we're gonna go to the West Coast, if we're gonna, let's say that we're gonna go to the East Coast, we all are gonna agree that we have to get out of Los Angeles. But when we're halfway across the country, we're gonna start maybe disagreeing as to, depending on if you're going to Miami or you're going to New York, which direction we're gonna be veering off into. But the fact is, generally speaking, there are universal moral values. And everyone in the world, all moral agents, that is all people, persons, doesn't mean you have to be a human being. Maybe you can be a Vulcan or a Cardassian or some alien, but you're still a, you're still a person. You're still a self-conscious being. That's what a person is. And a moral agent, uh, all human beings, all share uh, the belief that you should be a good person, that you should tell the truth, that you should be honest, that you should, you should have integrity, that you should be fair and just in your dealings with others. All human beings believe this. And all human beings also believe that it's wrong to lie, cheat, steal. And so pretty much when we, we study the comparative religions, we're going to find some radical similarities and disagreements in the truth claims of metaphysics and in the description of the mythology. But when it comes to ethics and moral behavior, pretty much we can say that there's a lot of common ground. So maybe we could, for our purposes this morning, we could say that we all share the same moral ideal and that we can agree what is right and what is wrong. But the problem comes, in general, as long as we're speaking of the ideal, we find that we can come together in agreement. But when, the, when we begin to apply the ideal in the real world, there we find ourselves in difficulty. As they say, the devil is in the details. And certainly it's true in the philosophy of ethics. Most particularly in applied ethics. For example, we can all agree that we should tell the truth. But what if it hurts someone's feelings? Pretty much we could agree in an ideal situation that with the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. But what if you're a soldier in the army? We all agree that you should not uh, hit people. But what if they hit you first? All of us believe in fairness and justice. But what does it mean to be fair? And here we find ourselves wading into a world of difficulties. Because we live in a relative world. And in a relative world, everything is balanced 
on the part of the pairs of opposites. The teaching of Vedanta philosophy is moral values. What can we call this philosophy? We can call this philosophy self-realization ethics. You know, there are different systems of ethics. There's utilitarian ethics, completely rejected by the students of the Vedanta. There is the divine command ethics of the Judeo-Christian monotheistic God in heaven, quite different. There's the Nicomachean ethics of Aristotle, the virtue ethics, quite different from this system, which we could call self-realization ethics. In this system, moral values are not absolute. The word absolute here, as in the deontological ethics of Immanuel Kant, the word he uses that everything there is absolute. The word absolute is not a helpful word. The word is used in the teachings of the Indian philosophy is we do not teach moral absolutism. We teach moral universalism, moral objectivism. So it's good for us to get some of those words clear in our mind that I am not a moral absolutist. I am a moral objectivist. I am a moral universalist. I believe that there are universal moral values, but they're not absolute. That is, you have to kind of making any moral judgment. That is, reflective judgments. Moral judgments are one of the four kinds of reflective judgments as is cataloged by Immanuel Kant. In making any moral judgment, we always refer to the universal as our ideal, but at the same time, we allow room for interpretation. We allow room for the resolution of the conflict of different ideals and dharmas, and we recognize that circumstances alter cases. Let's look at a few of those understanding of what it is to make a moral judgment and to allow to have clearly in our mind a vision of the universal ideal, but allowing room for interpretation. Now in the United States of America, we all subscribe to the principles of the Constitution of the United States. This is the law of the land. And we recognize that uh, that sets forth the principles of the social contract by which we have agreed to live. But we also know that um, there's often considerable difference among scholars when it comes to uh, interpreting that constitution. That's why we have courts. That's why we have federal courts. We have a Supreme Court that will adjudicate those differences of interpretation of the same passage in the Constitution. There's no question about what is the passage. There it is. We all agree on the passage. We all agree on the exact words. All men are created equal. We all agree to that. But what does it mean? 
Now in the interpretation, we have to allow room for interpretation. Best example maybe comes to us from the Brihad Aranyaka Upanishad, where the gods, the demons, and all of mankind, baffled and confused about how to live their lives, and what was good and what is bad, and seeking some kind of ethical, moral guidance, all together approached, went, went journeyed up to heaven, and approached the great Lord Prajapati. And their goal, their goal and purpose was to get some teaching that would enable them to live good lives. And so first of all, all, the, all those beings, the gods, assembled themselves together and they approached the mountain and they addressed the Lord Prajapati, asking him for some teaching, some blessing. And the lightning flashed and the thunder rolled and they heard a voice from on high that said, Duh. And the, the gods, they looked at each other. What? What? Did you understand what he said? Duh? Duh? They looked, Duh, of course. Yeah, I mean, they, they mean dhammeta. Uh, that means be compassionate to others. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Beautiful teaching. Thank you. They all got there. They were satisfied. They went, okay. Then the, then the mankind came together. They went up. Same thing. Came up the mountain. Prayed to Prajapati. Lightning flashed. Thunder rolled. And they heard the voice. Duh. They looked at each other. What? Did you understand? What, what does it mean? Duh. That, what, he must mean datta. Datta. That means given charity. Yeah. Very good. That's a very good instruction. Thank you, Lord. They went away satisfied. The demons, similarly, they approached the Lord Prajapati, came up the mountain. Lightning flashed and the thunder rolled. And they asked. They heard the voice of God speaking to them. Duh. Looked at each other. What? What? Did you understand? That means control yourselves. Yeah, that's a good. So they all went away with their own interpretation of the teaching of the Upanishad. Play on the Sanskrit words. Principle remained the same, but the difference of interpretation. So we have to allow for the difference of interpretation. We also have to allow for the, what in Sanskrit is called the, the Dharma Sankata. That means a clash of values. And in ethics, this is maybe the, one of the central features of all books on applied ethics, which immediately place the student in a very difficult position where a hypothetical extreme position, which you'll never hardly imagine, but in which you're forced to decide between two things which appear to be, that is, you're, you're caught between the, the, the devil and the deep blue sea. Which one are you going to choose? You seem to be damned if you do and damned if you don't. And yet you must act. And of course, the classic example was given of theirs is of the, the, the young girl, Anne Frank. You remember during World War II, or there she is, little Jewish girl. She's hidden up in the attic with some other refugees by a pious Christian German. He's taken compassion on them. And one night, sure enough, the secret police come and knock on the door, and they pose this question to this pious Christian, a man committed to moral and ethical living, 
Are you hiding any Jewish people here? Now, this is the Dharma Sankata. He has to decide. Is he going to lie and thus violate the basic principles of uh, morality? Is he going to tell the truth and sacrifice the lives of those that uh, in the attic? And so we can see on this occasion that we have to make a choice. And sometimes the choice, the right choice, is the choice which will carry us onward and upward to realize our true self. And that will depend upon our, where we're at. So that's the Dharma Sankata. And uh, sometimes we have to choose between two evils, two wrong things. Which one is right? Which one is wrong? Well, in our philosophy, now at least we have a meta-ethics that will enable us, theoretically at least, to decide. Of course, in such extreme cases, what happens is, is that the BMI will take over you. That is your basic moral intuition. That is, you will spontaneously respond Without, you can't just th think there and let me get, go get my philosophy books and I figure this out, which one, no, you can't do that. So this is our ethical practice. That is, we're allowing room for, we have the principle. We're allowing room for interpretation. They're not absolute. They're universal, but they're not absolute. And we're allowing for the conflict of dharmas. We're also allowing for the fact that circumstances alter cases. That is, our goal is to reach the top of the mountain, but exactly how we will go about reaching the top will depend a lot about where we're at and about what our capacities are, what our resources are. If you have a horse, maybe you would ride the horse. If you have a bicycle, you're gonna walk, you're gonna run, you take a helicopter. These are all different ways in which you could achieve your end. There's no one right way or wrong way. It depends on where you are, who you are, your disposition, your, your karma, your dharma, and how you use your own faculties, faculty of discrimination, that is the buddhi, your own wisdom to decide what is the most expeditious way in which to make progress. Sometimes it would appear then that uh, when we say what is the right thing to do, if we were talking to different travelers on the mountain, different climbers, the advice given to one would be maybe radically different from the advice given to another. And just as if I'm in, uh, in San Diego and someone asks me, how do I get to the Santa Barbara Temple? I just say, good, you just get in your car on a freeway and drive north Santa Barbara. Now, if somebody asked me that same question and I was in San Francisco, I'd say, yes, you just get in your car, you drive south to Santa Barbara. And people, you, you may say, a third person, well, what is his advice? Some people say, sometimes he says, drive north, sometimes he says, drive south. Which one is it? Well, circumstances alter cases. It depends on where you're at. The goal is the same. The destination is the same. We all share the same destination, and yet circumstances alter cases. A good example that is often discussed is now come from the life of Sri Ramakrishna, his two young disciples, Yogin and Niranjan at that time, maybe 14, 16 years old. 
came to visit Rowett every day after their school uh, on one side of the Ganges, the village of Belur. They would cross over the river to the Dakshineshwar temple to visit their guru, their master. And one day, Niranjan, that was one of the boys, he came down to the, to the water and he hired a, there was a ferry boat there. Ferry boat means just a very small boat that's plied with a long pole. He got in the boat, they warped out into the current. And as they're crossing the, the, the river Ganges, there are two merchants, two businessmen sitting there in the front of this small boat. And they, they have no use for sadhus and monks and holy men and religious people. They think they're a big waste of time. And so they're going on and on disparaging the so-called saint of Dakshineshwar. And Naranjan was a young boy who was, uh, well, he was known to be very strong-willed, impulsive, passionate, often acted before he, before he thought. And he, he, he demanded that they stop speaking like that of his guru, maligning his guru. And of course, those men, they looked at this boy with contempt. Continued on, and Ranjan jumped up on the boat, put one foot on one side of the boat, and began to rock the boat. He said, I'm going to sink the boat. Yeah, they were so shocked. They keep quiet. Okay. They get to the other side, and Ranjan goes, and goes to the room of his master, and in the course of the conversation, he related that incident, and Sri Ramakrishna, his guru, chastised him. He said, what? What? How? You did that? What an impulsive, reckless thing to do. Terrible thing to do. You want to learn? Why don't you learn to control yourself? Wrong thing to do. Now, the very next day, the, other, the second disciple, his name was Yogin. Same age, but of a radically different temperament. Yogin was a very sweet, tender hearted person, indrawn, introspective. And he came quietly, sat in the boat, boat warped out into the current. So happened that on, on that day, same most famed merchants were there, still carrying on their same disparaging conversation. But Yogin, he just withdrew his mind, began repeating name of God. He just ignore them. Got to the other side, he got, went into the room of his master, and he related that incident of what had happened. Sri Ramakrishna looked at him. What? He was very vexed with his disciple, chastised him on that occasion. He said, what kind of a person are you? Here people are maligning your guru, criticizing your sutta. You, 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 you just sit there quietly and say nothing. You're so passive, so submissive. Wrong thing to do. So here now, we, we, as a third person observer, maybe, what? What is this? He seems like we're giving... Two completely radically different moral instructions. In very similar circumstances, how can we understand that? How can we reconcile it? Well, now, assuming, now we have the groundwork, we have the framework for understanding that circumstances alter cases. And that the universal ideal, that is personal growth in this case, spiritual growth, progress in your spiritual life will take place by two different methodologies. It's the same purpose. And so um, this is the nature of the self-realization ethics. We give that name to it. If you, want to, if you want a name for it. Universal moral values. The applied ethics in the relative world, 
allow for room for interpretation and uh, for the difference in circumstances alter cases, we can see then that moral judgment is always relative and context dependent. Moral judgment is always relative and context dependent. Now here we come to a major caveat, that is a major observation as students of philosophy, that in this system of ethics, this is a version of virtue ethics, similar to that of the Greeks, similar in some ways, quite radically different from that of the Judeo-Christian tradition, similar to that in many respects of the virtue ethics of the Buddhists. But this system of ethics tells us that moral judgment are relative and context dependent, but we have to understand and be clear in our mind that relativity does not imply moral relativism. Now, these are two terms that sound very similar. We have to be very conscientious in discriminating the two. We live in a relative world. Everything is relative. That is, depends. What that means is it's dependent on the time, the place, and on the circumstances. That is, it will differ according to some objective state of affairs. All physical laws, for example, are relative, right? It's relative. That is, if you're moving on a train and you're walking on a train and you say, how fast am I going? And you're, you're standing on the platform and you see, you've, you know, the old physics of relativity. It seems that one is going faster than another, and it's relative to if you're on the train, you're, you're going one speed. If you're on the ground, you're going a different speed. But the fact is that the laws of motion are exactly the same. The laws of motion do not change. They're universal. So ethics here in this regard is always, moral judgments are always relative. But that's quite radically different from moral relativism. That is, an advocate of moral relativism or moral subjectivism maintains that the moral judgments depend on your own personal preference. The reference is not to an objective state of affairs. The reference is a subjective reference to your own personal preference. That there are no universal standards. According to the moral subjectivism, that is the, maybe we could say the default ethics of postmodernism, there are, there are no universal standards. There are no universal values. That uh, everything depends on your own personal preference. That's moral subjectivism. So the Vedanta philosophy completely rejects and repudiates this teaching of moral subjectivism. And yet it recognizes that we live in the relative world and all judgments are context dependent. 
The Sanskrit words here are sadharana dharma and swadharma. Sadharana dharma means universal, what's universally true. Swadharma means what's true for us at this time, place, and circumstances. It's like in a military campaign where you have the strategy, which is followed by the general, and then you have the tactics, which are followed by the sergeant who's, who's on the ground. The two work together. One is general, one is more specific. Now, let's go, let's go back and ask ourselves to conclude, let's ask ourselves a very practical question. The practical question is simply, why be good? Why should I be good? And uh, it's a kind of a question that consciously or unconsciously, we're always asking ourselves. That is, each one, if any of you have children, you know, you, you, ask, you tell your, your naughty child to do something, the first query, why? Why should I do this? Explain it to me. Why should I do this? Well, even if you don't have children, you do have a child within. You have an inner child, right? With the higher mind, the lower mind. We're always in conflict. And the lower mind, the inner child always wants to do exactly what he wants to do. He doesn't want to be good. He just wants to do what he wants to do. And so the question is, why should I be good? What is, the, what is your reasoning? What is your rationale? Now, uh, if you were to go to a church minister and ask them, why should, uh, why should I be good? What's the reasoning for being good? We would be told, well, our Father, who art in heaven, he has given us certain commandments, and that we are his children of his family, and as loving children, we will follow, we follow the commandments of our, of our Father. And uh, we know that if we, if we do follow those commandments, we will be rewarded and we'll go to heaven. We'll live happily ever after. But if we don't, then we'll be punished and we'll go to the other place. So why should I be good? Well, it's kind of carrot and stick now, <laughs> reward and punishment. And well, you may say, I don't, uh, the inner child may say, yeah, well, I don't believe in all that. I don't believe in all this God in heaven and heaven and hell and all that. Forget about that. It doesn't convince me. So why should I? Why, still asking the question, why should Well, you may argue. Well, uh, I mean, great humanitarians, great utilitarians may argue, well, you should do good to make this world a better place to live. After all, you live in this world. And you should be good and you should do good. You should work for the happiness of the many and the welfare of the many. This should be your goal, and uh, this is a very high ideal. The happiness of the dedicate my life for the happiness of the many and the welfare of the many. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, like me. <laughs> and uh, that sounds like a good rationale. But you know, the inner child is often very perverse. Perverse, that's Edgar Allan Poe, the imp of the perverse. He may say, yeah, I, you know, I don't really care about others. I'm not interested in others. I'm interested only in myself. Why then should I be good? What's the purpose of being good? And therefore it is at this point, thank God, that we come to Vedanta philosophy. 
because it's only the Vedanta philosophy which gives us a reasonable answer to this question of universal question that is in the heart of all oh, man. Why should I be good? The answer is very simple, because you are good. You should be good because it will make you happy, because being good is being who you really are, that virtue enables you to manifest your true nature. And that the whole purpose and point of your life, you're struggling every moment to be who you really are. And the, and the way to do that is to live in accord with the universal virtue that will make you happy, that will make you prosper. Why should you be good? Not because you should, not because some commands have come down from on high, not because it will make the world a better place to live, not because any being outside of yourself is somehow forcing you to do so, but because that is your nature. Goodness is your nature. Goodness and godliness is your nature. And every baby step that you take forward, that is the think of the mountain, every time you take a baby step forward towards climbing the mountain, you move closer to your goal and your purpose, which is the shining city of the self, which beckons us from on high. Om Dyo Shanti Antariksha Om Shanti Kritivi Hishanti Apa Shanti O Shadaya Shanti Vanaspataya Shanti Vishwe Deva Shantihi Brahma Shantihi Saravam Shantihi Shantireva Shantihi Same Shantiredhi Om Shantihi 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 Om Peace is in heaven, peace is on the earth, peace is in the sky and in the waters, the herbs and plants and trees are full of peace. The gods are peaceful. May this eternal universal peace enter our souls and beings. Om, peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.